Well, we had some technical difficulties, lost the internet, but we were talking about the issue of anger and motivation and, and doing a big project, uh, producing uh, the kind of work that you produce that takes sustained attention over years. And um, I relate to that. I relate to the anger, getting angry and then going, okay, I got to correct this. <laughs> but the question I, I had was, can is is that sustainable the anger as as a motivation to do the work or i mean yeah i think i mean it is it is for me because i have multiple audiences that i test the ideas and the anger out on hmm. so if anyone were to follow me on social media over time what you would see is that often some of my maybe ranch or threads or kind of explosive ideas that I put out there four years later are books. So the mass incarceration thing, that's not related to drugs. Is that what you were, you were saying in that book? Well, it's not because of drugs, I'll just give an ex <laughs> yeah, I'll just, I'll just give an example of how that process might work, particularly with a topic like, like mass incarceration. Okay. Pretty, pretty popular idea that the reason for the spike in African-American incarceration in the 1970s or the 1990s, particularly, particularly 1990s was the, the drug war, the war on drugs. How, how big a spike and are we some, talking about? How big of a spike are we talking about? I mean, we're, we're talking, I mean, the last I checked, we had almost like two, 2.3 million incarcerated the men and women in, in the system 96 percent of those are going to be men the large majority of those in state prisons and federal prisons are african-american men and, and a, a, ma a majority are african-american if you if you look at if you look at some of the, the 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 spikes in the 70s 80s and 90s that that large increase uh -huh. over that time was largely an increase in african-american men Prisons in general reflect the, the general population. So if you look just the, a straight in number of, of incarcerated persons, the majority are going to be white because the majority of Americans right now are white. Okay. But if you look at the, the spike, the increase between the early seventies and 2000, that massive increase is going to be primarily African-American men. And so okay. the, the assumption was, well, that's because of the drug war. Mm. And that just didn't make any sense to me hmm. whatsoever. And people talk about on social media, there's a famous book that came out uh, by Michelle Alexander called The New Jim Crow. Oh, and yeah. And I, I, yeah. I thought, I thought, man, something just doesn't seem right about that. So when I see a primarily accepted, a blindly accepted doctrine without people investigating or interrogating, I start asking questions, right? <laughs> I'm like, well, why aren't people questioning this? Because it just doesn't seem, it just doesn't make any sense to me that the war on drugs would necessarily massively increase incarceration rates when, for example, during that same period, we had massive increases in violence mm, and property true. crime. Right. Right. But what the data actually shows is that's. I lose you. 
I'm still here. Okay. Um. So so maybe so maybe maybe increases in in mass incarceration are actually about about increases in criminality with respect to drug crime and property crime, particularly in low income areas and urban centers. Maybe that's the reason. Right. Put that on social media. People say, no, no, no. You think you're crazy. You're crazy. I'm like, okay, well, let me find some data, find data, write an article. Okay. Articles out. Well then let me go, let me go speak about this, to some audiences and see how it, how it turns out. So there's a social media issue. I write an article, then I go talk about it at some conferences. I get a lot of Q and A's. And then I'm like, okay, I think I can do a book on this, but I use the feedback from the social media, from the Q and A's, from the audiences to sort of, to sort of characterize and, and drive how I construct the whole project, what kind of issues should, should I talk about? And so once, once the book is out, I've probably been thinking about it and talking about it and speaking about it and writing about it in some form or another for probably four years. Okay. Yeah. So my, so my most recent book, for example, is on college fraternities. I saw that. And that really came out of interacting with my students and seeing that there was something about male culture that did, did has you have, some issues. Did you have fraternities at King's College? So at the King's College, we had a house system, much like they have at, at Oxford. So there were six women's houses and four men's houses. I was the faculty advisor for the house of Winston Churchill. And this was a house of guys. They would, they lived together. Um, we did events together. It was sort of, you know, like the reference that I use for people is Harry Potter. Cause they're like, Oh yeah, I, I, I get that. Mm -hmm. So if, if we were at Oxford or Cambridge, they, they would have been in the same building, dorm building, would have had the same dinner jacket on with a patch on their on their pocket, on their blazer, et cetera. So over the years, I mean the the Did you were the, you in a fraternity? Popularity. Were you in a fraternity in college? Yes. Yes. Uh when I was at Clemson University, I placed Alpha Phi Alpha uh, Incorporated, founded at Cornell University in nineteen oh six. Uh, famous alphas include include Martin Luther King Jr., wow. Thurgood Marshall, really? W. E. B. Du Bois. Wow! Yeah. So I I can and a whole list of others. Those are just some of the minor figures in, in American history. Did, did you know that when you pledged? Is that why you wanted to go in there? Sure, sure. Well, yeah. it's just sort of known in the in the black community. There's just a number of. They're called the Divine Nine, which was these sort of nine fraternities and sororities that really came to shape the destiny in many ways of the black community beginning in the early 20th century to the mm -hmm. present. One of the differences between those sort of white Greek world and the black Greek world is that the, 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 the major, the main mobilization in Greek life happens after you graduate. So my mom is in her is is in her early 80s and she still goes to sorority meetings. Wow. Uh, in it in in Atlanta. She's in Delta Sigma Theta. Where did she so go? So Martin Luther King, uh she graduated from Elizabeth City College in North Carolina. And it's a HBCU. Of course my mom and my dad uh, would not have been allowed to attend the college of their choice because it was during Jim Crow. 
So they had to attend a historically black university in the in the South. Okay. So this fraternity uh, so, that you you were in the the Clemson one, that was a black fraternity. Yes, it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. we had we did have a white guy from Philadelphia, but historically <laughs> historically black. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. So in other words, and you're so, not you're not excluding white people, but it's mostly black no, people if, that want to be in there. Yeah. If 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 a white guy wanted to pledge the fraternity, he wasn't prevented from doing so. It just rarely happened. It happens every now and then, but it's it's pretty it's pretty rare. Do you feel like um, it was a healthy experience for you? Being absolutely, it was fantastic and it was formative. Okay. And at least at least the ways in which it happens in the in the black community. Uh, it's, it's a very different experience. It's not so much about the the partying and all that kind of stuff. Although there is that, uh, there is this sense because of the history that you're being prepped for service. Okay. Particularly service in, in the black community. So hmm. the, the invitation was come, come and join a group of, of men who, who's really shaped not only sort of black history, but American history and see what your contribution can be. Uh, to that history. I see. And so the, the idea for your fraternity book was what, what, what was it that made you angry that you were trying to respond to? Well, it wasn't so much anger. It was sadness. Ah, a different um, emotion, was, a different. Emotion. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I I'm going to ask you to was, tie this all into love at some point because you're a Christian, right? Yeah, I'm sure. Sh- I'm assuming so. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was really actually that's tied to anger because what I saw was see still is a culture that, you know, sees men as the problem. So there's that phrase toxic masculinity mm-hmm. and looking at fraternity guys as a bunch of problems to be fixed. OK, yeah. But when I looked at the data, when I looked at my own students, what I saw was a group of lost men mm who were struggling with anxiety and depression and a lot of pain from their parents' divorce. Mm. They had a sort of, you know, a lot of them have addictions to various things. Mm. A lot of them struggle with suicide, all sorts of mental health issues and concerns, complete discouragement about their role in society because society is to say, we don't need you anymore. Yep. Checked out, mm-hmm. withdrawn, and shamed, especially in the, in a lot of conservative churches, they get shamed for being. What could possibly go wrong <laughs> with all right. that? Yeah, yeah. So, so when I, so there was just disparity, and I thought, well, if there's one group of men historically who has any chance of saving the universities and the country is fraternities because of the history of where fraternity men end up later on. So if you look at American history since the mid 19th century, anywhere from 70 to 80% of all politicians, all CEOs, all judges, et cetera, were all in fraternities in college. We've only had two vice presidents in the history of this country after fraternities started, we've only had two vice presidents, for example, that were not in fraternities. In fact, 
Kamala Harris was even was in a sorority mm-hmm. uh, when she was in college at Howard. She was in Alpha Kappa Alpha, which was the sister, which is the sister sorority to my fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha. So what fraternities tend to do is they produce the nation's leaders, at least leaders in the marketplace, but also leaders in in politics. And I thought, man, well, this is a population that I think if we can if we can orient them toward heroic virtue, a life of virtue, then I think we can make a pretty sizable dent in a lot of the pathologies that we see in our country. So instead of abolishing fraternities, I had this crazy idea that we should invest in them and make them better and invite these men to the cardinal virtues, invite them to prudence, invite them to justice, invite them to those things. And what I found over and over and over and over again, when I go to a college campus and I invite men to virtue, you know what they Mm. do? What? They enthusiastically sign up for it. Wow. And the, and the one thing that I get repeatedly on campus after campus after campus is a phrase like this. And I'll never forget this student saying this to me. No one talks to us like this. Yeah. So yeah. one of the reasons that we don't have a lot of young men who are living lives of virtue and honor and dignity and loyalty and temperance and peace and prudence, et cetera, is that no one's asking them to do it. It really is that simple. Mm, Just wow. ask. No one's asking them. So, so what we're doing, what we're doing is that we're asking young men to not be bad. Yeah. Right. They get it's yeah. formation by negation. Uh huh. Oh. Don't be misogynistic. Don't be an alcoholic. Don't, don't watch porn. Right. Don't be a rabble rouser. Don't be X, Y, and Z, but they don't know what they should aspire to and become. Yes. There's no character affirmation. There's no character model. There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing there. In fact, I'll say it this way. We don't encourage them to love anything. Wow. We just invite them to not be horrible things. And and what I've seen over the last couple of years as I've immersed myself in this project and gone and traveled across the country to campus is talking to fraternity guys is that they want to be great men. Mm. Absolutely want to be great men. They yeah. want to be men of honor and virtue and character, but they have no roadmap and no one's invited them to do it. They just don't know how. When did all that click for you? It really clicked for me. Well, there, there, there are two things. One, what I noticed is I was, I, I teach a class I, I taught I taught a class at King's on the history of masculinity in, in America. We covered really be really around when I say the history, not the whole history, but we kind of start around the the early 19th century to the present. And just sort of looking at trends in masculinity, masculine culture, both in Christianity but also in secular culture. One of the units that I do in the course is the history of fraternities. And what I began to notice is I was just Googling one day around and, and I noticed that every single week somewhere in the country, this is back in 2012, 13, every week in the country, a fraternity was getting suspended somewhere. Every single week a fraternity was getting suspended, getting kicked off a of campus 
for either one year or four years or permanently. I'm thinking, what is going on? They were getting suspended, of course, for a lot of hazing issues. A lot of students have been dying, fighting fraternities. They've been they've been suspended or they've been completely uh, uh, like permanently kicked off campus for for sexual assault. Uh, there have been some cases of, of racism as, as well and mm-hmm. something, you know, like property damage. But to me, that makes a lot of sense. Right. A, a 19, 20 year old in college don't break something. I mean, that's yeah, that's what they do. They break things. OK, mm-hmm. but but I, I begin to see these patterns and I was thinking these guys are like this is not a sign of rebellion. Right. This is the sign of emotional distress. Yeah. That they are struggling. Like they're really, really struggling. And and it really, I mean, I kind of had these ideas that you know, guys are gonna be great men. They, they really do, but no one's really invited them to do so. And I and I, I offered this heroic vision up. And there's a student at the University of Virginia by the name of Nick Fisher. He is in a fraternity called Sigma Phi Society. They go by Sigma Phi's or SERPs there on grounds at UVA. And he had somehow, I think on social media, stumbled upon my work and invited me to address his chapter. This is in the fall of 2021, November 2021, on, on grounds at UVA. And I will never forget it. I will never, ever, ever forget the experience of inviting a room full of of men from multiple fraternities to a life of, of heroism and a life of virtue. And I framed it something like this. What it means to be a man is to use your power and your presence and your creativity for the purpose of benefiting other people. That everything about you is for the purpose of cultivating a sense of self and duty and honor. That your power and your strength and your presence and your creativity are really for the purpose of making your 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 fraternity brothers' lives better, but also the lives of all the other students here on grounds at UVA. And that by doing so, you're setting yourself up for a life of public service in your communities that you're going to immerse yourself in when you graduate from the university of of Virginia. And it was, I was nervous. I mean, I was scared to death because I thought here I am at a very large school, very competitive school, extremely bright students. Mm -hmm. And here I am inviting them to a life of the heroic. And to my surprise at the end of my 35, 40 minute speech to them, I got a standing ovation. Wow. And they were, they were enthusiastically clapping. And then we had a, probably about a 30 more minutes of Q and a session. And then I went to a bar with about 15 students from the university of Virginia. And we talked more about this for about four hours. And that's when it hit me. And you had coffee only, right? <laughs> I had I had bourbon and Diet Coke with lime. But I had one. All right. Or maybe maybe two, maybe two, maybe three. 
<laughs> but we were we were we were involved in such intense conversations about masculine virtue and being a man on campus and and aspirations of being husbands and fathers and it was just absolutely fantastic and beautiful and i thought this is it in fact it was the, it was the experience of those students on grounds at uva that i actually changed the the focus of the book project because hmm. originally the, the book project was going to really be almost equally critical of, of fraternities to match a lot of the other books that I've written. But after being with these students for a few hours, it became a project of a sympathetic ear yeah, directed at motivation and encouragement. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was when the, the switch flipped in my mind and I thought I got to do this differently. And and from that point on, it's been it's been what what it is. Who published that book, the fraternity one? After getting probably a dozen or so no's, I mean, I got a lot of no's uh, from a lot of agents said no, a lot of even Christian publishers said no, a lot of main press uh, uh, folks said no. I published it with with Whippenstock there at uh, west coast with eugene eugene origin and it's been it's been a great partnership uh, for me i i realized as i've looked at all the publications on fraternities that i have the only book that's advocating that fraternities can be good things wow and when i looked at the acquisition editors at a lot of the university presses and, and other presses when you look at their bios, I had there was one publisher who said we only publish books from a feminist perspective. That is right on their website. So if you're not a feminist, you can't get a book published with this publisher. This is by the way, it's an academic press. So publishing a book saying fraternities are great and men can be great, and fraternity guys in particular can be great, we should invest in them. I uh, was probably not going to fly too well with a lot of the acquisition editors who tend to yeah. kind of buy into the narrative that, that males are toxic by definition. Do you believe in the demonic? Do you believe the demons are real? Absolutely. I mean, I, yes. It, yeah. 100%. To me, that feels demonic to me. Like, I just feel like there's, and I know that I, I have a view of human nature from, from scripture where James says, for example, that uh, we ourselves fall into sin. Can't just blame it on the devil all the time. But when I see these massive social, uh, this social darkness at different places, and it does seem to be geolocated oftentimes, but you you see, when you see stuff like that, I, I for me, I just feel like that's evidence of uh, a sustained attention span that is beyond human beings to me, like that, that has a purpose. That's not good. I don't know how you see it. How do you see it? How, how do you, how do you incorporate uh, your worldview into how you're seeing everything Christian worldview? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, there's real opposition. I mean, one one of the things that I learned in seminary from the Dutch reform perspective yeah. is that there's there's the kingdom of God 
And then there's the parasite kingdom. Yeah, that's a good way to and, put it. And, and the parasite kingdom is the kingdom of the enemy who seeks to kill and destroy everything God has, everything God created good. We see in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created the creation is good. Created men and women is, is good. Was happy that he created men and women. And that the parasite kingdom is intent on destroying that at every aspect. So as a as a Christian personalist, for me to make the case that can you can you define personalist just for other people that might not yeah, know what that is? I will I will in just a second. Uh for me as a as a Christian personalist to make the case that young men can make positive contributions to their campuses and to the world and that young men who are in fraternities are actually highly positioned to do so to so the parasite kingdom is is not just anathema it's, it's a threat because the one population on a college campus that can really that kind of sets the tone for the campus culture is greek life particularly at large at large state schools the social thermostat in terms of what's normed on campus is often set by greek life so if we get i'll just pick a big state school university of oregon right university of idaho michigan state texas if the fraternities at arizona state university are all pursuing a life of virtue all the other men on campus are going to do the same thing if the men on the university if, if 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 the fraternity men at Arizona State University are pursuing a life of vice then all the other guys are going to pursue a life of vice they're just going to norm it norm it that way and so that's a real threat to the the parasite kingdom which seeks to kill and destroy and undermine all the goodness that God has in the creation itself so yeah it's going to be opposition and resistance to a project like mine that's seeking to bring out the goodness, the good potential and, and the images of God uh, that are, that are male. I use the word personalist on purpose. It comes out of sort of Christian social thought tradition. Uh, the, the personalist tradition really emerged after world war one began to formulate itself. There really began to see it after world war two as well. It's often associated with Emmanuel Moliere, uh, and it's a way of thinking about politics and economics and public policy, society and culture by keeping the human person at the center. So one, one way to think about what personalism does, it, it's going to ask a certain set of questions. If God has made the human person with certain characteristics, capacities, capabilities, potentials, et cetera, what sort of structures and institutions and frameworks should we erect in society that allows people who are made in God's image to live that image out? What sorts of political structures and economic structures and social structures allow human beings to actually image in real life and practice what it means to be in the image and likeness of God? So it looks at the attributes of the human person. You could think of some of the, the both the communicable and the non-communicable attributes of God. 
right? And then says, okay, what kind of what kind of institutions help support the family, help support love, help support creativity, help support education, right? Things like that, compassion, things like that. And so what the personalism, what the personalist tradition did is to think about justice and social justice in particular in terms of what it means to keep the person at the center. So mm-hmm. one variation on this on this theme is the framing of human flourishing. You've probably heard that 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 phrase. Now, the personalist tradition was something that inspired figures like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, he studied personalism at Boston University uh, for its PhD, and he used personalism as a framework for the entirety of the civil rights movement. So if, if you remember, particularly in Memphis, there were some signs and placards that were made that just read, I am a man. Yeah. And that 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 framing of the civil rights movement was a personalist framing. Uh, Francis Schaeffer also was a, a personalist. He 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 really used personalism, keeping the person at the center in the Labrie mm-hmm. center framing, bring people in with their questions, address their questions, address their issues, talk about the gospel in terms of, of that as well. Uh, Pope John Paul II was also a personalist. Even the Persian at the center was the basis of the, the pro-life movement and, and things like that. So that, so that tradition like, is something that, that I've used. So some people are familiar with Ayn Rand, you know, and they think of individualism. But of course, she was an atheist and she famously had a spat with uh, William Buff Buckley, who was Catholic. And they, you know, they didn't see eye to eye on on the broader understanding of what a human being is. She imported her atheism from the Soviet Union, ironically. I think it undermined a lot of what she was trying to do. Uh, is that, uh, that that focus on the individual made in the image of God have a lot to do with how you see public policy, for example, at Acton? Well, I would say that the, the difference between the Randians and the and the objectivists is is the distinction between person and individual. Okay. So what do you what do you get with with the the sort of classical liberals and and a lot of the the libertarians? They're going to talk about self interest and individual rights and things like that. That's different than personhood, or what it means to be human. So I think one of the differences in the Christian tradition is is the the intentional use of the word person, which really informs. It, isn't that the idea. subject of the rights? The subjects of uh, the person is a subject of rights and responsibilities. It is, but the 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 difference is is that in the Christian tradition, there's really no such thing as an individual. You're a person but you're not an individual. You are interconnected by definition and dependent on other people. You are interdependent as a person. Persons need other persons for flourishing. There's no other way to have it, right? We're not reptiles. You're, You're born into a family and you are interdependent on other people. And so that God made you into a, a person, Mm -hmm. 
So there's some sort of Trinitarian influence there. It's three persons, not three individuals, but three persons. So that this the sort of framing of personhood is absent in a lot of the secular framings like the Randians. So the Randian's problem is their anthropology's off. And that's and that's some of the limitations there. And so you see that in a lot of their ethics. So for example, one one major difference is that if if God has made us into persons with this sort of intersubjectivity, interconnectedness, it demands a certain type of virtue that fosters real human flourishing. So there's some moral implications there that the objectivists are going to be like, well, hey, as long as I do it, as long as I'm free as an individual to do whatever I want to do, as long as I don't infringe on the rights of somebody else to do what they yeah. what they want to do, then that's morality. Right. Person that says, well, it yeah. still might not be good. Yeah. It might not be virtuous. It might not build the human person into a more glorious person. Even though you may be free to do it, it might not be great or good. A while ago, we were talking about anger and and your motivation. And I, I really relate to that. Now, as a Christian, how do you understand the, the proper role of, of anger in academics and in and, and, um, the Christian life and, and in social advocacy like you're doing? I, I see it as, as a variation on the things that, at least in the scriptures, that God gets angry about. So God is angry at evil, gets angry about unrighteousness, gets angry about hypocrisy. And so insofar as I'm seeking to be a type of scholar who images God, follows God, I want to be angry about the right things. So when you think about it this way, what's it mean to to celebrate the things that God celebrates, but also to lament the things that God laments and also to be righteously angry at the same things that might be righteously angering to the God of goodness and, and creation. So it helps me in one sense to not care about some things that people get all angry about. Mm-hmm. And in other ways, I get more animated than some people about things that people might find not too objectionable. I get really, really angry. For example, I I get, I mean, one of the things that blows my top completely is bearing false witness. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's something that, because, I mean, there's a reason that's in the Ten Commandments. I mean, Mm -hmm. it can destroy people, right? So when I see people lying about other people, distorting their words, I absolutely, I almost have a stroke because uh, that, that just makes me, that can, makes me sanger. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with people disagreeing. That's fine. I'm even okay with people uh, maybe, maybe, maybe making an ad hominem comment here and there because they're immature and they can't handle the discourse or sinners, whatever. But to misrepresent someone in either their speech or their actions to me is just absolutely evil. Right. So, so I, I really try to 
use that as a way to motivate and sustain interest. One of the things that you'll know as a scholar is that, listen, it takes months or even years to get something published. And, and just being mildly interested in something doesn't sustain the, the drudgery of having to submit, revise, submit, revise, submit, revise, wait and wait and wait and wait and wait on something to finally come out. The, the timeline between having an idea and a book being published is two years. Minimum. It's wow. two years. For those of for those of your listeners who were philosophers, I mean, they'll tell you that it, the publishing in an academic journal might be three or four years. Yeah. So you, I mean, to me, I'm just like this. I mean, I have to have some level of emotional connection to the topic. You know, oh to yeah. Sustain this process yeah. of getting getting published. Yeah. You're you're an interesting. I think. You're, I think you're an interesting guy and I'm, I'm trying to figure you out. I feel like I, I don't normally hear people talk about anger. So just blatantly, uh, and I really relate to it. I think I find it to be refreshing, especially from Christian. And, and, and when, you know, this is sometimes we get into politics here on the Republican professor podcast. It has been known to happen. And I just, you know, I, I'm obviously people get angry and with the politics and stuff. Do you, do you have hope about the future, uh, in terms of, um, politics where, where do you come down on, on, on your hope or how you perceive interaction in the, in the American political community? I think I have a, I have a sense of Christian realism in that sense some kind of resurrecting Reinhold Niebuhr in the 1950s and 60s. Reinhold Niebuhr was a Christian realist. I think Christian realism has waned a bit, sadly. But it's this basic understanding that, listen, our world is complicated by sin and pride. Of course, pride comes in two forms, the pride of self-contempt and self-degradation, the pride of self-aggrandizement. And anxiety. There's just a lot of uncertainty as well about the future. There's a lot of unknowns and there's just a lot of mystery. We're not going to have heaven on earth. But there's an approximation on some issues that we can make the world to be a place that is as virtue-centered, centric, focused as possible. But just having some realistic expectations that about that. That little thing right there that you said about there is the possibility of progress and there is a possible, even though it's not going to be perfect, but how, how to make progress, how to get that possibility is an interesting topic um, <clears throat> because, I mean, you look at certain parts of the world and they're just like hell holes. Look at North Korea, for example. Yeah. I mean, for decades and decades and decades. And the difference between South Korea and North Korea. And they're right there, right next to each other. <laughs> you know, same language, same mostly history. 
That's just an example. I mean, it could give you tons of examples. It could give you examples in the United States. Sure. I have well, a long you... view of things. Yeah. I have a long view of things. So there are, it's certainly the case that parts of even the U.S. are facing some horrible situations right now, but it's better than it was 200 years ago. Yep. I promise you that. Yep. And that's a lot better than it was a thousand years ago. Amen. Right. So I have a longer view of history. I recognize, I recognize, and this is sort of this understanding of, of planting seeds, someone else watering it, God makes it grow sort of framework that the work that we are doing right now, we may never see the fruit of it. And I'm okay with that. I'm perfectly fine with planting seeds of virtue and righteousness and goodness and not living long enough to see the fruit of that labor, because that's the history of God's people. That's the history of Israel. That's the history. That's the sort of redemptive story that we see from Genesis to Revelation, that God has always done things with, with generations and the generations with, with whom he did things. The succeeding generations often never got to see the good fruit of that ever. Right? Moses didn't get to cross over. <laughs> yep. He didn't. Right? You think Joshua got to saw I mean Joshua didn't get to see what David did. I mean David didn't get to see what Jesus did, right? So there's this whole history and I'm like Christians chill out. Hmm. I mean, the, the framing here is in a, is is eternity, not your lifetime. And so you can lament recent history, but if you look at the big picture historically we're actually doing we're doing okay i mean yeah we got some issues and some problems but i'm I'm hopeful about the future because i'm I'm thinking about a big picture b long view why do i work with students because i recognize that it's worth i'm i'm planting seeds of hope in the future that that the students with whom i invest are going to bear fruit after i'm gone what what makes you the may, most what makes you the most hopeful and what makes you the most angry right now i think i think what what makes me the most hopeful this might sound a bit crazy uh, is that the, the the norms are in complete disarray yeah i think a lot of the on a, on the a, one side these, these a lot of people of, are feeling anxiety from the instability of basic social institutions including like marriage absolutely. gender yeah, absolutely. But I also see that as an opportunity to to bring what's to have to make the case for why these things are good in the public square. And we didn't have to do that 80 years ago. It was just an assumption. Wait, this is your hope, right? You say the hope is the most yeah. hopeful thing is the opportunity that we have. Yeah, this is great. This is great because it's actually going to force us in, in, in the way of apologetics to make the case for marriage. Uh-huh. Just sort of make make the case for why why religion's good, right? To make the case for why limited government because they've just been an assumption in in the past. So I see it as 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 an opportunity. I think the thing that makes me the most angry, which gets me the most discouraged, is the role of trauma and addiction in undermining people's ability to flourish. I've just been watching a lot of of videos of young adults whose lives are being sabotaged by fentanyl. 
and the opioid crisis and addictions to food, addictions to alcohol, addictions to pleasure. These are the sorts of things. And a lot of, a lot of young people experiencing massive, massive traumas in their life. Physical abuse, sexual abuse, divorce is a massive, massive trauma in a child's life. When you, when you wed addiction and trauma and then look at the, the basic cohort of, of growing up in America as a child, we're screwed in that sense because an addicted, traumatized individual can't, won't flourish in a healthy way as a teen or young adult. They're not going to form families well. They're not going to enter their marketplace well. They're really, really going to struggle. You know, you talk about demons. I completely believe in in the demonic. It's in the Bible. It's it's real. If you travel across the country in developing con- context, you'll see it's a regular part of the conversation. One of the things I love about the Black Church tradition is the Black Church. We talk about the devil all the time. It is fresh in the minds of people. Sometimes too fresh. But it's mm-hmm. there. The devil's yeah, there. I relate to and that. And I, I think, I think if, if you if if you think about the 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 craftiness of how the enemy works in the states, you undermine people's flourishing. Well, idolatry. I'll, I'll say I'll say the, the sort of three three things: idolatry, trauma, and addiction. People worshiping stupid things like money and career materialism addictions to their stupid cell phones to food to sex to drugs and alcohol and then the amount of child abuse we have in this country is outrageous to me it's unnerving the amount of abuse of children that we have it's and when I, when i say abuse i mean both both abuse physical abuse sexual abuse but also neglect so if children are raised in a context of idolatry and trauma and addiction, that's the stuff I get. That's the stuff I rant against the, the most because I see it completely eclipsing the wings of people and their ability to sustain a, 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 a morally virtuous, positive life of, of service where they can make contributions to, to making the world better. I mean, think about think about the number of politicians who've been taken out because of this stuff. Oh yeah, the number of past the number of pastors, pastors. who've been taken out because of this stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. the number of academics. I mean, it's becoming an epidemic in, in academia to see a professor whose life, whose career has been completely sabotaged because he lacked moral virtue and was dating a student or something crazy like that. Crazy. Actors. Mm-hmm. I remember yeah. when, I, when I was in college. Athletes, yeah. actors. I remember yeah. when, absolutely. I remember when I when I was at when I was in college at Clemson. I was a I was a biology major, and oh, the really? big drama in the biology department at Clemson was was we came back from summer, and this one professor who had hair, I mean, down to her waist, she cut it all off, and she she's her hair was really short, and we were like, what what happened? Well, over the summer, her husband, who was also in the biology department, had an affair with his grad student on some marine biology trip, and it destroyed the synergy of the whole biology program at the college. It was absolutely horrible. 
So those are the sort of things that make me angry and and kind of, you know, sort of introduce some hopelessness because I see the enemy working in in really unique ways in those areas. How do you do self-care? Because it seems exhausting what you do, like with all these kids, you're going to UVA and you're hanging out with them for hours and hours and hours. I'm assuming that you're really personally available at that moment. You know, you're not just like, you know, your eyes glazed over. Do you keep in touch with these people? Is this just part of ministry? I do. That seems exhausting you know, I, to me. How do you how do you well, have the energy for that? I'm a massive extrovert. Oh, I actually that's, that's get helpful. energy. That's nice. Yeah, I'm a I'm a strange academic. Yeah, I'm a very bizarre academic in the sense that I am wow. I am high on the extroversion. I'm in, in I'm fact, jealous. I don't of you. do well. <laughs> I don't I don't do well in, in in isolation. I mean, why did I go to the bar with those students for four hours? Well, I'm assuming one, the, the apps it was were a, good. <laughs> yeah, they were. Um, on the on the on the one hand, I needed to recharge from my from the talk that I gave. There's no better way for me to recharge than to hang out with people. But then, secondly, I wanted to do some more research and get some more, more information. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I think I think self care for me includes includes making sure I'm I'm connecting well with people mm-hmm. uh, in in general. I, I do watch a fair amount of college football. Uh, that not, is not the NFL, absolute... not the NFL. I do. Co- I do. Football, I mean, the, the college N- versus NFL. What's better? Well, I mean, college football is, is 10 X better than the NFL. The NFL is boring and, and, and predictable. Although sometimes it can get exciting, but it's usually not exciting to the playoffs. Much like the NBA college games are completely unpredictable because you got to have a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds who are one day they're great and on and awesome. And one next week, they're just rubbish. It's, you don't know what's going to happen. Okay. So on Saturdays, on Saturdays, I usually watch game day from nine to about noon. I'll watch at least two games, sometimes three on Saturday. The NFL on Sunday is sort of background noise gotcha. just in the background okay while i might take a nap or you know cook a meal or maybe run some did you, errands, did you but... play football was that important for you playing i i did not i became a college football addict at clemson when i was in high school college football was not a big part of my family's life we were kind of nfl fans major league sports fans and i went to clemson knowing nothing about Big D1 Southern college football. Nothing. I'd never been to a, a college football game in my life, ever. And the first game as a freshman, Clemson played Furman. I walked in a stadium of something I'd never seen in my life. 80 plus thousand people. Wow. Wear, wearing the same things, chanting the same chants, singing the same songs on cue. And it was like a religious conversion. I was like, what is this? (laughs) I'll never forget it. I was so, I was, that's your, that's your fentanyl for an extrovert. That's, that's what gets you high. (laughs) Yeah. I was so euphoric. It was like being in the seventh heaven as, as, as I was, I was, I was so high off that experience of being around all those people. I called my mom and I was, I was hoarse. I could barely talk because I was screaming and yelling with all these other students on the, in the student section. It was like, it was like the best thing ever. And I'll tell you at that moment, 
there was no way under the sun I was going to transfer from Clemson and go anywhere else. And the fact that I had four years of that just completely cemented me in college football. I had a roommate once. We followed 70 college football teams in one season, seven zero. And so did you follow the individual players? Did you know the actual names of the individual players too? That's a lot of information. Wow. Yep. Yeah, we, we did, but we, we, but we committed time to this, right? Cause it was, it was that important and we did it. We did it in part, partly as, as recreation and, and a way of, of connecting, but it was a way yeah. of, of getting involved deeply, kind of deep learning. Deep yeah. Research, and it keeps you out whatever. of trouble too. I mean, you're not going to get in trouble if you're doing stuff like that, but that goes to your, don't do this the formation, but it's, it, it sounds like a, it sounds like an, a good way to do some self-care to me that's good yeah some healthy habits yeah i mean yeah i don't understand how the southern i I don't understand how the southern people play in the heat that's what i just don't get like i grew up in colorado the 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 humidity i I mean i I see these people playing in like texas and you know florida and you know south carolina is where clemson is right it is south carolina is very hot in the summertime and you don't sound like you're from the South. Are you from the South? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. I'm from Atlanta. You are from Atlanta. Okay. You've talked about yeah, your I mom to... a bit, but do you have a dad? What's your dad? Yeah, I do. Are you close with him? Uh, yeah. I mean, we're we're relatively close for a man of his generation. Mm-hmm. My parents have been married for 60. Oh, wow. Maybe 60. I have to count maybe 63, 64 years. They've been married mm-hmm. uh, that long, which I've been really, really blessed to to have. Um, just grew up basic middle class. My mom was kind of worked in education at school, teach my dad career to the post office. Mm-hmm. And okay. we kind of lived the way I described my, my upbringing was, was the show, leave it to beaver but everybody was black and that's kind of the okay gotcha the framing of it so <laughs> everybody went to church there was basically yeah. no divorce in my neighborhood two parent families you know station wagons soccer we had go-karts ice cream it was america it was great did did you guys go like hunting and fishing were there any guns or anything in your family at all like what was their role not, of firearms? not really i mean Okay. Uh, there was there was a rifle in the in the home, but in the south, I think everybody probably had. Something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it might have been a. It was a. Yeah. It was it was a single single bar. Yeah. It was it was it was just rifle. I grew yeah. up in the. You know, I was I was also heavily involved in the Boy Scouts. I'm an Eagle Scout. Oh, cool. And so oh, uh, outdoor awesome. stuff was really important. Yeah. Beginning seventh grade, I was camping oh, once a cool. month for six years. Yeah. Uh, backpacking in North Georgia mountains and, and East Tennessee, Alabama, et cetera. So, so this is great. You had a really stable background, good parents, good jobs, uh, great community around you. At some point you left the United Methodists, I'm assuming. How did that whole conversion happen? Yeah, it was, it was basically social. It wasn't like I, I didn't have any issues with the Methodist church. I just, when I went to college at Clemson, I 
got a bunch of friends that were in the, are, are the your folks still Methodist in America. Are they your are. folks? Mm, they're are still. They? Yeah, they're still at the attention? church. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, um, they they're in the the same Methodist church that I was raised in. Wow. And that church, I think people may not be aware of this, but the Methodist church had segregated churches for a very long time up until probably the late 1970s, early eighties. So I was in a predominantly black Methodist church, which was, which was in terms of the conservative liberal scale conservative, because as most black churches are. Yeah. Yeah. So it was theologically conservative and theologically Wesleyan. I mean, I, I would, if I was at my parents' home church recently and they were actually quoting from Wesley directly in a sermon. Wow. So classically Wesleyan in, in that sense. So very conservative theologically. And so, you know, when I came into the PCA, it wasn't like I was leaving Methodism because I was against the set of doctrines. I just had I just had a bunch of friends. Again, as an extrovert, I had I just had a bunch of friends who were Presbyterian. I probably could easily become Anglican or Orthodox or something if I had a bunch of friends who were who were Orthodox as well. I wasn't really principled uh, that way back then. It was mostly mostly social. They were nice people, and I'm an extrovert. And your PhD's from Westminster, which is that whole tradition of of the Reformed. And I if 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 you're barely keeping on, listener, because you don't know the his, like the what happened after the Protestant Reformation and all that stuff. Wow. But it's to me, I see you, you you seem like you're somebody from like 50 years ago. Like to me, because people don't talk about these doctrinal differences anymore. It seems like to me, I mean, it's like I went to a Baptist college and I'm glad they still have the word Baptist in there because all all sorts of like I was raised, I was, I was married in a Baptist church and they took the word Baptist out there. These, these guys are taking the denominational uh they're they're calling it a community church or something like that and it's like uh they're i I find that my students don't know basic things about the denominational differences and 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 you you know like they did like 50 years ago people average people seem to know something about what the difference was between a a presbyterian and and a and uh you know an anglican or something like that so you're like, I feel like you're like from 50 years ago and like a healthy person coming to talk to people today and to help people today. Like you're, you know, the, the message of hope and virtue. Uh, can you clarify what virtue is? Are you talking about the biblical virtues? How, how, do, how do people know what a virtue is and Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, yeah, I I sort of I, I use I use that word on on purpose to disarm people. And and when I when I I when I use virtue, I am really talking about a, a particular orientation toward the good. Mm-hmm. And what I find is that when no you one's say against the it. good, though. I mean, people don't normally talk that way. So I know what you mean because I'm a philosophy guy. <laughs> I taught philosophy, but when yeah. you say the good, uh, tell me, tell us what that is. 
what you mean just abstractly or you have a concrete i don't like the term concrete but yeah i mean i i it to me it just depends on on the audience right i okay i am so when i when i when i use these words these terms in particular yeah. it's for yeah. the purpose of, of disarming people okay and and bringing them into a discourse so that later on they say no no what what do you mean by that and, and where are you getting that from um so so yeah. Yeah. i i want people to relax and listen to 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 the ideas and the and the discourse and i mean my my definition of of course the sort of grounding of of my definitions are going to come directly from the scriptures in terms of where I get things from ultimately. Mm-hmm. But I'm actually okay with, uh, with an Aristotelian definition or something like that, or, or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with, with those definitions as far as they go, because it opens up space for dialogue and discourse and challenge and growth. I don't, I don't necessarily need to have everybody have the precise definition of, of things like virtue and good in order to advance a discussion in contradistinction with evil. I don't necessarily require that. And I'm also, I'm also open to people having some distinctions in their own definitions and their, on their own sources of what the good is. I think I'm a, I'm enough of a, of a common grace theologian that has space for multiple variations on what good is and what, and what virtue is. I'm okay with a, a philosophical definition. I'm also okay with a Christian definition, a Jewish definition, a, a Muslim definition. I'm, I'm okay having those within the context of the conversation uh, so that we can, we can seek the truth together. So bring all your discussions of the good and virtue and morality and goodness and and greatness and beauty and let's continue to tease that out until we can get something really really concrete that can help us what what's do you miss new york city i mean you're I in haven't been michigan away. now so that's quite a difference yep yeah. yeah, i've been here about two and a half months i used to live here though so it's not completely foreign territory i lived here in the early 2000s for three years i do i do miss uh, new york what what do you miss? I about don't it? miss. Well, I was, I'll tell you what what I what I don't miss about New York is the constant smell of marijuana. Now, oh wow, it's just constant. It's horrible. That's fairly you can't new. Give right? them, That's fairly yeah, it new. Is. You can't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. you should just be the smell of urine and water and sort of, <laughs> you know, uh, standing water, right? Mm-hmm. But now it's now it's urine and marijuana kind of mixed together as a as a general fragrance in the air don't miss that part i think as i've told people about the demise of kings i think i miss kings more than i'm going to miss kings more than i'm going to miss new york hmm. the thing about new york city is that there are things called airports uh, and you can get on these things called airplanes and you can go and experience that as much as you want i mean i could fly back every weekend if i could afford it not a big deal you but said you still have an apartment is, there i do or, and i've got people uh, renting in, in there okay. right now but oh, yeah. I see. So, so when you i can't go, just go in there right. and kick them out <laughs> well i could, I, could. Yeah, I mean could. I, I do still have 
Yeah, I mean, I do still have a a, a room that I can use, a bedroom oh. I, I can use in that in that apartment. So, uh, and and I have I have gone back uh, a couple times, and and I'm sort of you know back home in, in one sense. Uh, but I think Kings is something that's sort of a a, a bigger lament than missing New York City. I, I I had said it for years, and this is had, was always true that if Kings packed up and moved to Iowa, I would still I would pack up and move to Iowa. I think wow. I think the thing that the things that we were doing were so unique and good that that they couldn't be replicated anywhere else and. And what we did for students, I think, was was so was so helpful and good. And I I got to see that uh, firsthand. I wanted us to move to Philadelphia because that's my favorite city in the country. Why? I just had a great time there. Great people there. It yeah. has everything New York has. Small is a slightly smaller scale, uh-huh. and you can get to nature much yeah. much quicker yeah. and, and easier. And the people. The people I met in Philadelphia just really loyal, great mm. friends. One in the in Philadelphia culture, they're straightforward like everywhere else in Northeast. Yeah. Once you're in, uh-huh. you're in. And yeah. these are some of the yeah. most loyal and committed friends you're ever gonna have. In California, people are fake. That's where I'm at. So in Southern California, right? In have, Southern have California. You, have you heard of Azusa Pacific University? I have. That's where I'm teaching. And I feel okay. like Azusa I feel like Azusa is is hanging on by a thread financially, just like Biola, actually, where Biola just got a big gift from the in and out burger people. So I think that was for just one department, but that was for their business department. Was it the yeah. business department? Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. You follow this. Yeah, they got a, they got, I do. I, I follow them now uh, in, in the last few years, because I've just seen a number of schools close. So I'm always curious about the ones that, remain open and, and, and getting, getting big gifts. I'm what interested in what you're schools, saying about like California, you're saying they're fake. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, just in terms of the, the friendships and especially Southern California, people are nice, but they're, they're, they're trying to use you for something. Right. And, and if you're not, if, if you aren't, uh, if you can't add value to, to their life, they'll just move on to somebody else. Right. Um, it's just a different, it's just a it's much very, more transactional culture. Okay. That's interesting to hear because I, I'm not sure I have enough to compare it with because I've been here for so long. I did grow up in Colorado, but I, I feel like it takes so long to get anywhere here that it's very difficult to sustain community. And it's very, it takes a long, long time to develop friendships is what i've noticed since i have had moments where i wonder do i have any friends here and and i've had that thought many times here and i've been here 20 years so that's interesting to hear that um makes me wonder what it's like somewhere else like philadelphia well i mean philly philly culture is is great i mean they'll they'll not only be your friends but they will They'll commit a crime for you, right? I mean, they're just sort of <laughs> sounds like the mafia. That, that cl- <laughs> it does. It's fantastic. These guys are so committed, committed to. I mean, I, I've got people that, that I know would would die for me without without thinking about it. And that was just in you know making friends within a, a couple of years. I mean, that's how loyal. Just the sense of loyalty there is is really, really outstanding. You're you're an interesting guy. Are you married? 
I am not. Okay. I was about to ask you if you had any kids, but that I'm assuming not. <laughs> I I also I also don't have any kids. I was in a barbershop recent uh, a few years ago, and it was it was one of those moments where where you might hear a record scratch back in the seventies or eighties. The whole barbershop was was stopped because someone asked me if I had any kids, and I said no. And then everybody turned. It was like screech. Music stops. Everyone turned and looked at me. And it was almost like it was said in unison in the barbershop. Several people, several people were like, you don't have any kids? <laughs> now, mind you, mind you, almost everyone who was in the barbershop was not married. Oh, I got But you. they all had kids. Oh, right? yeah. I, I got I you. was strange because yeah. I didn't have any kids. But they were normal because they all had kids with multiple partners. It was just kind of this interesting... I was like, well, I'm not married, so I don't have any kids. And they were like, you don't have any kids? I was like, no, I'm not married. But you're not married, and you have lots of kids with lots of different people. See, that's what I mean. You're like from, I said 50 years ago, but I didn't do the math right. Should have been 70 years ago, I think. 70 years is a, maybe a better number. Yeah, so how do you approach like dating or whatever did do you have hope about this I, I can't imagine what it's like to be single nowadays i mean if you're interested are you interested in becoming married yeah of course i, I feel I think, like you're i feel like your jewish grandpa right now or something <laughs> well i think it it's often just depends on the context right in new york city being a, a non-married professional is no big deal no one even talks about it yeah Right. Yeah, I see that. When you're in more suburban context, it's yeah. a bit alien there. At the King's College, I think one of the reasons why it was such a unique place is that it's probably the only Christian college in America where I'd say anywhere from 25 to 30% of the faculty were single. Mm. You just don't see that. You don't see that. So our students got an interesting vision of adulthood. On the yeah. one hand, right. you had a lot of us who were who were not married. You had a lot of couples who were married with children. Mm -hmm. We had some couples who were married and they weren't able to have their own biological children and adopted lots of kids, which I thought was a, cool. a beautiful thing for our students to see. As, as well so so our students were really introduced to those different models of being a single adult being a married adult with kids uh, but also adoption we had a massive adoption culture on our faculty which is so admirable and, and praiseworthy and and inter i think they don't call cross-cultural adoption i think is the phrase or intercultural adoption i think is the is, is the phrase so we had lots of professors who adopted special needs kids from all over the world, uh, in, including uh, places like China. We also have faculty members who, who adopted ethnic minority kids. I mean, white sort of white faculty members who, who adopted minority kids, which is was also extraordinary. So at King's, it really wasn't strange or odd in that sense to be part of that cohort of faculty members who who weren't who weren't married certainly not a big deal in new york city because you have lots of that uh, there in the in the professional class 
Do you mind if I pray for you? Sure. I, my grandpa always and I asked, I pe asked people, and I was like, why don't you just pray for them? Why, why do you have to ask permission? Lord, I ask, Father, we ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, <clears throat> have your protective and providential hand on this scholar's life and his work and that you would make it go forth and be productive and bear much fruit and that you'd bring a partner together with him a woman of god to share in this and to share life together I ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brother, I know I've kept you a long time, and we had some very difficult technological issues, and I'm very impressed with your demeanor and how you handled that, um, that disruption. You handled it a lot better than I did. I had a lot of anxiety and I was really upset and you seem to be so calm and you're the one talking about anger. <laughs> well, I, I have a podcast myself and so I've been on the other side of that. Okay. I know exactly so how that know. feels. Gotcha. I know exactly how that feels to have your technology glitch. I, 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 I've been there. I've been there. <laughs> I really appreciated it. Because I didn't you have no your phone idea. number, I, I didn't have your phone number, and I I really appreciated your your patience and your virtue and your kindness. Yeah, I I have. Thank you. Yeah, you're you're very welcome. I I know exactly what it feels like. So the last thing I wanted to do was add any because I know what he's feeling right now. Because mm. uh, I've I've been there. This this is this has happened to me before. And I panic. I start sweating. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm like clicking, clicking buttons and stuff. Is it working? The, the browser's loading really slow. It's like, you know, all day it works great. And then right when you need it. I really feel like we got Anthony Bradley unplugged here. I feel like we got a real nice spectrum of, of who you are and the kind of work you do. And, and now I want to go out and get that fraternity book. I don't have it yet, but I'm going to go get it. Yeah. And I'm going oh, to link, link these books in there. Did you want to okay. say anything about acting or anything? I'm going to link that too. Um, if you don't know what acting is, check it out. Check out the acting Institute. It's how would you summarize what the mission is? Yeah, I, I would say really, really concretely here that we are at, at act 10, um, a ecumenical think tank in the best way. It was sort of drawing from the best of the Catholic and Protestant traditions, yeah. really for the purpose of advocating for a society that is both free and virtuous. That's why I use the word virtue so much, is both free economically, politically, and religious free and virtuous. Why is that? Because you can't have freedom without virtue. Uh, you can't have markets function without morality. You can't have limited government without a people that are oriented toward the good. It just does not work. It just doesn't work at all. So we're advocating for that, for that, of course, more broadly, more narrowly, we are trying to find the best solutions to poverty 
in this country and around the world that we can we can find drawing from the best of the of the religious traditions and that includes christian and in some cases muslim and jewish kind of drawing from the abrahamic religions in particular to try to find some of the best solutions to poverty around the world in ways that sustain societies that are both free and virtuous you talk like a preacher and i love it you have a cadence that that you know it's got that power of the pulpit and I think it really accents the work you do in the scholarship. I think it's a very interesting combination. And um, I'm I'm so grateful for the time that I've had with you today, Anthony. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. This is this is fantastic. God bless you. You too.